open your Bibles where uh, we left off last week. Uh, we are in chapter 49. Uh, as I mentioned, the second major section is from chapter 40 through 55. Um, and we're done with that. We'll take a break. It'll be around Easter. Not coming up. We're in March. Uh, and we're going to be studying the book of Colossians together, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So you may want to go ahead and start reading that book. And then we're done with that. For summertime, we'll finish up Isaiah, uh, the last section, 56 through 66. Um, um, as you know, Isaiah is God's man declaring God's word to God's people, for God is a God who speaks. He has spoken in his word. He has sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to die as our substitute, he died for sinners, and he's given us our Holy, the Holy Spirit to understand what the whole Bible is all about, the triune God seeking, redeeming, and rescuing sinners. The gospel, according to Isaiah, is our series name because the hero in every book of, every, of all the Bible is Jesus and the good news of the gospel is gracious redemption for us. Isaiah is proclaiming, as we've mentioned, God's word to God's people uh, in our text He's uh, to the people in the media context in the 8th century. But we know, as we've been talking about, its main historical application comes in the 6th century when God sent his people, the northern, excuse me, the southern kingdom of Judah, into exile. God has been and will and does uh, discipline in love his, his people, Judah, the southern kingdom. And just like God raised up the Assyrian nation, which we saw that, to do his bidding of disciplining the northern kingdom, Israel, God used the Babylonian people to discipline Judah, the southern kingdom. And they too will, will come in, march on Jerusalem, march on Judah and Jerusalem and decimate it, bringing God's people, the Judeans, to Babylon for 70 years, according to Jeremiah. God also promised that when Babylon was done doing his bidding, as the Assyrians did, he would not only judge Babylon as he did Assyria, he would raise up a, a savior, a servant, Someone who will, he will raise up to set God's people free, that they will, he will release them from Babylonian bondage, and he will allow them to go back to Judah to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the wall, to the place of worship in Jerusalem where God meets with his people. We've seen that savior, that servant, is King Cyrus of Persia, who in 539 destroys the Babylonian empire. And a year later, God stirs his heart, just as he said he would, Ezra uh, chapter 1 and 2. God stirs his heart, and God calls the Syrian king to release God's people. He sends an edict throughout the nation, uh, letting his people go back, just as God said he would. And we ended last week in chapter 48, verse 20, uh, with this picture of God's people being commanded to flee. Not in the sense of, you've got to get out of there before something happens, but you've been set free, now flee. Chapter 48, verse 20, flee from Chaldea, or, or Babylon, that's just the country's name. And, and, and as you're going, bring, bring shouts of joy, right? Verse 20, go out, flee, declare with shouts of joy, proclaim it. The Lord has redeemed us. But I want to point out this morning, though, along those lines, very important, is that God has been using the redemption of Judah by King Syria, Syria, uh, uh, Cyrus, excuse me, to point to a greater redemption, a, a, a greater release from bondage, a, a better and greater return from exile. In chapters 1 through 39, the main idea, one of the main ideas is that God would, would, would raise up a better and greater king than Hezekiah and some of the other kings that we saw. Someone who would come from the line of David, a, a righteous king who will judge and rule righteously with justice on an eternal throne. We saw that whole 
chapters 1 through 39, pointing to Jesus, the son of David, the one who will reign and rule as, as the ultimate king. In these chapters, the king of Persia, Cyrus, who releases Judah, who's called in chapter 45, verse 1, the anointed one, points to a better and greater redeemer, whose title now we see in these chapters, the servant of the Lord. We were introduced to the servant of the Lord in chapter 42. We learned that the spirit of God will be upon him. We learned that he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will be gentle for a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And this servant of the Lord will open the eyes of the blind. He will set captives free. He will not grow faint. He will not be discouraged while he establishes this righteousness and judgment of the world. He, he is gentle, but he is certainly not weak. Today's passage is the second description of the servant of the Lord. There are four of them. And we once again see and get a look in the Old Testament of this promised servant of the Lord, this Savior, this Messiah that Cyrus represents but points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's maybe a little cloudy in the Old Testament. We'll see as we look as well into the New Testament. To understand the Old Testament, you've you got to see Christ in it and know what the New Testament says about the person and the work of Christ. So we're in chapter 49. Open your Bibles there. And we'll see as we walk through this chapter, we will see three things. That's what I hope we will see. We will see first, the servant's call. Second, we will see the people's comfort. Third, the world's confirmation. So let me read to you God's word this morning. Chapters 49, let me read to you verses 1 through 7, the inherent, infallible, authoritative word from God. Chapter 49, Isaiah, verses 1 through 7. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back Jacob, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Excuse me this morning. Here we see the call of the servant, and we see this prophetic sphere is being enlarged. In verses 1, we see the servant's invitation includes not just the Jews, but those from afar, afar from the, from the coastlands. And notice how the servant speaks with absolute authority, right? He's commanding the world to listen to him. Listen to me. That's imperative. That's a command, O coastlands. And give attention. Pay attention. Listen up. Sit up, you peoples from afar. In Isaiah 42, if you were tracking with us, 
God spoke about his servant of the Lord, and he spoke to his servant of the Lord. Here in chapter 49, the servant is reporting things in his own life, speaking of his own call. He states how he's been called and named from his mother's womb. In other words, the servant of the Lord has been set apart before birth and uniquely equipped for the mission in which he was sent. In fact, Peter tells us in 1 Peter that Jesus was foreknown before the foundations of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. We read in Matthew 121, the angel and Joseph, he says that Mary, your, her, your, your wife, she will bear a son and you shall call his name, you don't get the option, you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's his name. Yeshua saves. Notice verse 2. The servant of the Lord, his weapon is not what would be expected in this time. He will accomplish God's will, not by military force, but by a revelation of God's word. It's from his mouth, the word comes out. And the word of the servant is like a sword. And he himself is a polished arrow. So see that in verse 2. Young in his commentary writes this. His is an office of the mouth. His task, a declaration of the truth. For he is a prophet par excellence, and his word is the gospel, which to the one is a savor of death unto death, and to the other a savor of life unto life. Life and death. Revelation tells us in verse 19, the coming of Christ. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the almighty God. God's going to bring down all those who oppose him. The Lord will send his servant. He will come. And by his mouth, there is the redemption, the truth of the gospel that will be proclaimed to the poor and the needy. And these two realities should not be separated. The servant as a prophet of the word of God, bringing life to those who repent and believe, and yet judgment to those who reject him. In his quiver, he hid me away. Suggested that he was, he was hidden out of sight, the servant of the Lord, Jesus himself, until the appropriate time. Galatians tells us that when the fullness of time had come, when God in his sovereignty, in his providence, at the perfect time, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those under the law so, law so that we may receive adoptions as sons. And this sharp arrow, this sharp, excuse me, sword, and the polished arrow, from what I understand, they polish the arrow, they rub it free from roughness and unevenness because it, because it will help to guarantee what it was set out to do. It, it brings accuracy. And the servant of the Lord will do exactly what he has called and been sent out to do. Now notice with me in verse 3. It's an interesting verse. Notice in verse 3, the servant is identified as Israel. It's, you are my servant Israel. Okay? I mentioned this back in chapter 42. When you see the word, the servant of the Lord, to understand the true identity of the servant of the Lord, you have to understand the context in which it was written and also the characteristics that have been ascribed to the servant. That will tell us who the identity is because there's more than one that is called a servant of the Lord. At first glance, chapter 3, it looks like that God, through Isaiah, is speaking about Israel, the people of God. But if you continue to read this, this text, this chapter 49, it becomes clear and clear that God is not speaking to a collective people, but to a single individual. 
In fact, in fact, if you look down in verses 5 and 6, it makes it plain. Because this servant of the Lord was sent to do what? To gather Israel back to God. The New Testament also makes it clear that the servant of the Lord here is a single individual, Jesus himself. Because in Luke chapter 2, it was Simeon in the temple, verse 6, who looks at the baby Jesus who was given the promise of a prophecy that he would, he would see what? A light for the revelation to the Gentile. He quotes chapter 49, verse 6, talking about Jesus. In Acts, two places, this verse is mentioned talking about Jesus. So we know servant of the Lord is a single individual pointing to Jesus. And look what it also says. It says that this Messiah, this, this servant of the Lord, this appointed one whose mission will bring Glory to God, verse 3. So far, Israel, Judah, has not, been being, is not really bringing a whole lot of glory. They have been disobedient. They're being chastised. They're being disciplined. But the servant of the Lord will bring and accomplish, will bring glory. Will, what he does and accomplishes will bring glory to God. And we know from John 17 that Jesus said, listen, uh, he's praying to the Father and he's saying, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. From the very beginning, I've done what you've asked me to do as he's looking to the cross. So why would Isaiah use that term? And I'll tell you why. Because the servant of the Lord, Jesus himself, the Messiah, will fulfill all that Israel failed. They were supposed to be and supposed to do. They blew it. We all do. We all do. They were supposed to be light to the world. They were supposed to glorify God. They were supposed to show the world the, the, how great and glorious God is and all of his infinite worth in their response and obedience to him, but they fail just like we do. So Jesus is all that they were supposed to be. In fact, the name Israel really started with an individual. His name was Jacob. He changed his name to Israel before it became the nation. And we see that all the events and the institutions and the persons that are in the Old Testament really are pointing to, including the nation of Israel itself, to the true meaning of who Christ is. He is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. And yet, it's amazing, in the call of Christ and the work of redemption, there is a sense that it was done in vain. Look at verse 4. It's amazing. But I said, servant and servant's call, I've said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. You read that verse and it's really hard to comprehend that in some ways the work of Christ was done in vain. But then if, if you look at how wide the road of destruction is and look, on the other hand, at the heart of God, we could understand why Christ and the work of the servant would have this sense of vanity in its mission. I think this speaks about the compassion of God. The compassion of God who Peter tells us that he wishes that no one should perish but all should reach repentance. Do you ever feel that way? You labor and labor and labor with a wayward child, maybe a parent, a spouse, a loved one who keeps rejecting the gospel, it's heartbreaking. The feeling of, of futility does not mean that we don't trust God. The feeling of, of vanity in this, this laboring 
does not mean there's no trust in God. Actually, trust happens when we rest in what God is going to completely do in the laboring of the gospel. We'll see in chapter 53, when we get there and shortly, that the servant of the Lord was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. People hid their faces from him. He was despised and no one esteemed him. John chapter 1 says that light has come into the world. Speaking of Jesus. Yet the world did not know him. In fact, it says he came to his own. His own people did not receive him. He was a man of sorrow. He's rejected by many. Nevertheless, the servant's work work will please and bring glory to God. Look what it says. Yet surely, a a contrast in the Hebrew. uh, uh, I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity yet, but surely my right or my righteousness, or my rightness is with the Lord, and my recompense is with my God. Family, justice sent the servant to the cross, but satisfying God's justice gave him the crown. One of the commentaries I read is a guy named Constable. He says this, This verse clarifies that feelings of futility and faith in God need not be mutually exclusive. The servant trusted God for the final outcome of his ministry, though, as he was carrying it out, appeared to be ineffective, end quote. The servant of the Lord will ultimately commit himself and his work to God and would trust him for the just and righteous reckoning that is due. It is God, the Father who equipped him, who sent him, who will make the final (laughs) judgment concerning the call and the work of Christ. It doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want, that we don't join God in his mission. What it means is that there is for us an expression of confidence that when the will of God is done and the glory of God is sought after, the servant of the Lord can trust God with rightly evaluating the labor and the work and the outcome belongs to him. And that's what we see Jesus entrusting himself, entrusting his work to the Father. That's a word of encouragement for us today. Be faithful. Trust the labor of love and of the gospel, sharing faith, sharing your love, declaring and demonstrating the gospel to God. Love, serve, and declare and demonstrate the gospel, but let God be the vindicator. Telling others, and we, we taught this in evangelism class, the point for us in demonstrating and declaring the gospel is sharing Christ with people. That's our responsibility. And whenever you get an opportunity to tell someone about the Lord, rejoice regardless of the outcome. The rest is up to the Lord. We are commanded to share. God gives life. Too often we get caught up in the fruitlessness or the fruitfulness when we should be focused on the faithfulness of our labor. That's what verse 5 is all about. The servant of the Lord has been called and formed from the womb to serve God, but he is, and the fruit of his labor will be to bring Jacob, Israel, back to himself. For my amillennial friends, sorry, but I believe this is the millennial reign of Christ. Bringing Israel back. He's honored in the eyes of the Lord. He will find strength only in his God. Cyrus will be needed to restore people to Judah, and the servant is needed to restore God's people to himself. And as I mentioned before, the real problem really is not captivity in Babylon. <laughs> it was estrangement from God. The servant is necessary to restore people's personal relationship to God. The only way we can have a right relationship with God is through the servant. 
but it doesn't end there. He's not only going to bring Israel back. The servant's mission is a worldwide mission. Because it's not just the Jewish people who need a Savior. It is all of mankind who needs a Savior. Greater than Cyrus. We all need spiritual deliverance. We all need an everlasting Redeemer and Savior. Verse 6. It's too light a thing that you would just be the servant to raise the tribes of Jacob and bring them back. I will make you what? As a light for the nations that my salvation may reach or be proclaimed and declared and be effective to the ends of the earth. Family, no matter what you hear, no matter what you're being taught, the scripture is clear. The only salvation of God that has been provided to the ends of the earth is the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. This, it's not like this was something new. It shouldn't be taken chronologically that, that now Jesus has this new um, job description. It goes back to Genesis in the fall of man when God steps in in chaos and, and, and promises that a, a, a child will be born, the seed of a woman will fatally crush the head of Satan. The promise continued that the seed of Abraham will come and he will what? Bring blessings to the whole nation, to all the nations of the earth. Even Solomon, he builds the temple of the Lord and he prays for those who don't know him or are far off will come and know the Lord and be saved. God's desire was to greatly honor the servant and he gave him this res- tremendous responsibility to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. There's only one light that can penetrate the darkness. Only one light that can penetrate the darkness. Only one light that can open the blind eyes of who are who are been blind because of sin that can restore us to a holy God. There's only one hope for all the nation. Only one salvation for all of mankind. All roads do not lead. The Bible is clear. Acts four twelve. You know the verse. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven, none, given among men by which we must be saved. That's Jesus. He's the only way to have your sins forgiven. He's the only way to be reconciled to a holy God. He's the only way to be redeemed and released from the bondage of sin and death. He's the only one, the Bible says, who was chosen of God to be the Savior of the world, First Peter. Jesus is the only one to come down from heaven and then ascend back to heaven, John 3. He's the only one who lived a perfect life, Hebrews 4. He's the only sacrifice for sin, 1 John 2, Hebrews 10. He alone fulfilled all the law of the prophets, Matthew 5. He's the only man to have conquered death forever, Hebrews 2. He's the only mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2, 5. On the cross, justice is served by the work of Christ who satisfies the demands of God's righteousness, he alone, Christ alone, In Christ alone, God is satisfied. Our sins are removed. He's the only perfect substitutionary atonement who stands in our place, whose offering satisfies God's righteousness. He's the only one. What a savior. What a servant of the Lord. In fact, verse 7 reinforces that truth, that he's the only one to redeem his people. Now, last week we mentioned that the word redeemer is used in this text, in this this Hebrew uh, word used, uh, in, in, in chapter 49, verse 7, when, when a person delivers a blood relative from an obligation, be it legal or financial, social, it was even used of avenging bloodshed. We mentioned that last week. The next of kin, God, the next of kin, taking responsibility for the family of God and, and, and taking on the troubles that they incur. incur. I also said last week that 
Isaiah calls the Lord the Redeemer ten times, but six times it's connected to the Holy One of Israel. Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. There's this, this Holy One who's pure and other than anything in all creation, separate from darkness, has no sin, has now taken on himself the burden of others. But notice this description. The God, the Redeemer of Israel, and now, look what it says, and his Holy One. See the connection? There's only one Holy One. He's talking about the servant of the Lord. This is the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ. He's the Redeemer, the Holy One. He will be the one, look what it says, who's deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One who has chosen you. In other words, Israel's Redeemer and the Holy One will not only be despised, which is true, but eventually the rulers of the world will bow down before him. Why? Because God the Holy One called him. He's faithful. He will accomplish that which he has called out to do and called to do. Now, before we move on, I just want to point this out too. Notice that this despised one is also called the servant of rulers, verse 7. Just, just underline that in your Bible. It's just the, 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 the servanthood of Christ. In, in the midst of what is going on, the, the, the despised being, the, 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 these, these nations that will hate him, he's still the servant of the rulers. Do you see how beautiful that is? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. God has determined that even the great ones of the earth, princes, will put their pride away and honor the servant, the one who serves them to the glory of God the Father. We see that in Philippians 2. We, we see after the condescension and humility that Christ takes on humanity to the point of dying, uh, uh, brutally dying and death on a cross, we see God then exalting him. Bestowed on him the name is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Not maybe, we'll see I'll think about it, so that every knee in heaven and earth, under the earth, will bow their knee to Jesus, to the glory of God the Father. We see this humiliation and vindication, and we see that Jesus, the servant, although he's hated and despised, and he has been by all of us in this room at one point in our lives, he received worship and honor as he serves and gives his life as a ransom for many. He is chosen of the Lord. That's who our God is. That's who the servant of the Lord is. Verses 8 through 13, we move to a greater understanding of the work that God will comfort his people. I love how Isaiah just keeps one eye on on what Cyrus is doing in the work of Cyrus and the releasing of prisoners and captivity and exile and yet ultimately on Christ. And although he will labor in vain, we saw that in verse 4, there comes a time in the appointed hour of salvation, he will uphold and enable his servant. Look with me in verse 8. Of chapter 49. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you, I will give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to uh, apportion uh, the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, Come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, nor scorching wind, nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them. 
By springs of water, he will guide them. Verse 11. I will make all my mountains a road, and my highway shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing, verse 13, for joy. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt all the earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people. The Lord will have compassion on his afflicted. An hour will come, the day of salvation. He will uphold his servant. God, verse 8, will make a servant, a covenant for the people. In other words, what we saw this once before. I don't have it off the top of my head, but it's not just that Jesus uh, gives us the new covenant, but he's the very embodiment of the grace of God and the pledge to us. Christ himself is how God pours out favor and grace upon God's people. From the beginning, God has given us himself through covenants. God is a covenant-making God, and we are a covenant-making people, and we are to rest in the work of Christ and the covenant that he has made and who he is. Motier rightly says, to speak, of this, to speak of the servant as the covenant means that while it is through his work, it's the gospel, that covenant blessings become available, it is only in him, Christ, in union of personal relationship with Christ, that these blessings can be enjoyed. He says, prophets, prophets preach the covenant and pointed from themselves, away from themselves, to the Lord, but it was the servant of the Lord will actually actualize the blessings and point them to himself. All the blessings of God, all the grace of God comes to us in Christ. He's the one that sets us free. He will restore the land. He will make the Israelites inherit desolate areas, verse 8 again. He will be the work of our salvation. He, part of the work of salvation, I should say, will appear in a favorable time and he will liberate, look what it says, captives both physical and spiritual. I'm the light of the world, he said. Those who walk uh, in darkness will have a great light, and I will be the light of life for you. God's sheep, he continues, will enjoy feeding. Look what he says. I will feed them, verse 9. Talking about the shepherd leading his people. Even on the roads of the formerly barren heights of the land, they will enjoy pasture. And we see this abundance of, of care that the shepherd takes, providing for his people protecting his flock, compassionately leading them and supplying all their needs. Verse 11 and 12, he will make his mountains barriers as flat as roads for his people to come, his habitation by building his highways so there will be thoroughfares for his people. And then we see this beautiful picture Isaiah paints for us of these people coming from afar, from all over the world, worshiping God. What a beautiful picture. And just like the Israelites of old, as they, on, as they go on their journey, they will be cared for. And God will provide for them. God will protect them. The route they mapped out is by the shepherd who leads them, even by uh, springs of water. And you see this beautiful poetry and this picture of, uh, that Isaiah is pointing to, not only the path, but the provision for travelers who are traveling and coming along because of the comfort and the compassion of God. And this work of, of, of labor of the servant will accomplish what they need and what you and I need, a clear path. Enter into the presence of God. Together we join the worldwide multitude and the benefits of God's comfort and God's compassion for us. This is their hope. This was their hope. This is their hope. This is the hope of, and, and their compassion and the comfort that God gives to his people. But let me tell you something this morning. This is your hope. 
This is your only hope. This is our only compassion and comfort. This comfort, this is our only deliverance from the darkness. This is the only way we can safely make it home is through the compassion and comfort of God. And let me tell you something else. There's room for you this morning. God has made a way. The death of Christ, our substitute, paves the way to God. No one's getting lost. God has made a way. He has cleared the valleys. He is leading us and feeding and providing for us. Have you come? Have you come to that place of worship? Have you sing? Have you have you come to the place of singing verse 13 for the greatness, goodness, and 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 kindness of God in the gospel? Where wicked sinners are made children of God, forgiven of their sins, reconciled and justified by God Himself. When you do, you'll understand verse 13 and the command to sing. <laughs> Isaiah concludes this section with, with the whole world rejoicing because of the comfort of the afflicted, the compassion of the afflicted. It's an expression of joy as one recognizes the servant Savior has accomplished all that he has set out to do. They sing, rejoice, shout, exalt. See the passage. It's a response to what God has done. Not you. You didn't accomplish it. I didn't accomplish this. The Lord did it. We do. All we do is sing. (laughs) The covenant God, man himself, restores broken sinners, ruined sinners, rebellious sinners, and sets us free. He leads us in the way of life. Moment by moment, caring for us, providing for us, overcoming obstacles, and bringing us home to his eternal presence. Now, as I was thinking this through and praying and studying this week, just a really short Bunny trail. Let me give you a quote about worship and singing, just for a moment. William Temple, he says this, Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration. End quote. Sometimes when churches gather, I'm not pointing a finger at anyone, sometimes when churches gather, we come in and as the band is playing, as we're singing, um, we, we kind of view like it's a concert. Okay, I don't know how else to put it. Like, like, like you know, it's a concert. The band is performing there, and they do a great job, but they're performing for us. And the people of God, the congregations, we gather together to sing, We see ourselves as the audience as the band is performing. God, of course, is here. It's a church. He should be, right? But he is seen as the prompter, you know, the one who who gives us the cues, like the person off stage who's reminding the actor or actress that, you know, you forgot your lines. There is a sense in which God prompts, and a sense in which the Holy Spirit enables us to worship, revealing the beauty and the glory and infinite worth of Christ. But that's not what I'm talking about. The proper way we are entering into the singing portion, this command to sing, of our worship together is first to recognize that God's passion has a passion for singing. God's passion for singing says it here in verse 13. The Psalms, we see the word of God, the the exhaled uh, God-breathed words set to music. That's what Psalms is all about. Psalm 96, 
Oh, sing to the Lord, we're commanded, a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Psalm 47, sing praises to God. Sing praises, sing praises to our king. Sing praises. Recognize God's passion for singing. Next, we must view our singing, listen, is to the audience of one God himself. Ricky mentioned it briefly this morning. God himself, he is the audience, not us. Not the gathered people. We sing unto the Lord. And God has given, especially this church, wonderful musicians, wonderful musicians, really good songs, richly dripping with his word. And these songs and this music do the prompting. They don't lead us into the presence of God because only Jesus can do that. He leads us. But as we sing and as the songs are being played, as the band is singing, singing richly theological truth from God's word, God's revelation, it helps us to recall, to remember, and rejoice in who God is and what God has done in the gospel. And theologically rich songs reveal the beauty and the infinite worth of God, and our response to the revelation of his beauty is worship, exalting and singing praises to God. We are the performers, not in the acting sense, but we gather together and participate singing to the audience of one. And that's what corporate singing is. Unity around the gospel, singing to God. Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine. That's debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's that unity. There's the unity, but it goes on. It says, making melody to the Lord. Giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, who is the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that up there too? Okay. Therefore, family, listen. It is proper to acknowledge participating in singing to God, who is the audience of one. So let me ask you. Is that the way we take singing here in this church? Are we gathering, we seeing the band, not as performers, but bringing rich theological truths to mind as we participate together and sing and worship to the audience of one. It's simple, but sometimes I think we forget it. Sing for joy. Heavens and earth, break forth, O mountains, and sing for the Lord has compassion. It is the Lord who has comforted his people. Is that up there? Okay, good. Let's go to point three, and then we'll go to communion. Thank you. What I love about the Bible, this section of Scripture, verse 14 through 26. Let me read it real quickly here. Verse 17, I'm sorry. Follow along with me, Isaiah 49, 17. Your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as ornaments and you shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will say in their ears, this place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord to God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations. Listen, 
Raise my signal to the people, and they shall bring your sons in their arms. The daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, the queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Hope you had breakfast. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the Almighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Verse 26. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Okay. Sing for joy, verse 13. For salvation, God has comforted you, and now it's like, hey, man, I think he forgot us. Verse 14. I love the, 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 the reality of the Bible. It's like joy and compassion, and, and then all of a sudden it's like, where are you? Have you ever felt that way? Don't raise your hand. Right? And then he uses this comparison. He says, you know, the mom, what mom forgets their, well, actually, he says, some actually do abandon their children. In this sad, broken, jacked up world, there are moms who are nursing their children or a brand new come out of the womb and they just drop their child off. Unfortunately, sometimes you know where. In the garbage. He said, but no, 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 not me. I will never forget you. I, I will never abandon you. I mean, think about that. The Lord's affection for his people is greater than the devotion of a woman who gives birth to a child and is feeding that child. That's how much God's compassion, love, and, and the fact that he will never abandon us. When hard times come, and, it's, and, and they come, and, and they will come, sometimes we think God is quiet, or we don't really hear from the Lord, and he doesn't respond as, as, as we want him to or hoped he would, and we feel that he is absent. He is not absent. He has not abandoned you. At those times, he wants us to draw near to him. He, he doesn't want us to, to draw near to him so he could change our circumstances right away. He wants us to draw near to him so that he himself is enough for you. He is enough. Not your circumstances, not your confusion, but his love, his presence, his power, his promise. Famous quote from Piper, right? God is most glorified in us. We are most satisfied in him that God is enough. Paul says nothing in all creation is going to separate us from his love. And he opens his hand. Look what the text says. He says, see, behold, observe, you're engraved in my hands. This is not something that will be washed away. This is, this is written in, in a sense of, of permanency. You know, in antiquity, a master would take its servant and it would write his name or mark his servant. You belong to me. This is the opposite. The servant of the Lord has us marked in his hands. He doesn't say, hey, reach this certain level. He says, no, I'll come to you. Having something in his hand, engraved forever, as we are, look, continually before me. What kind of comfort would that bring to God's people? What kind of comfort should that bring to us this morning? That the sovereign hand who placed all the stars in the sky, the sun, the moon, everything, has written his people engraved in his hands. Calvin says, the prophets here describe to us the inconceivable carefulness which God unceasingly watches over us and our salvation, that we may be fully convinced that he will never forsake us, though we may be afflicted with great numerous calamities. He is with us. Now, we have to move through this quickly. And we see verses 17 through following. Um, 
builders. It's a picture, 17, 18, 19, 20. It's a picture, uh, in immediate context, is the picture of, of the, uh, the people of God going back and building the walls of Jerusalem and the temple of Jerusalem, and that they're going to look around and say, man, where did all these people come from? But I think it points to something greater. And God moves from this, this, um, uh, this idea of, of not forsaking them, abandonment, to this abundance. They're going to look around and they're going to say, where did these come from? Verse 21. I was bereaved and barren, exiled, but now look, look at what's going on. There's a, there's a lot of people here. In fact, nations will come back and God's people will, will enjoy uh, uh, this fullness and abundance of, 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 of people and joy and restoration. Kings and queens will, will, will put their faces to the ground, lick the dust of their feet, a sign of submission. You'll know that I am the Lord. We see all that in this passage. But let's end here in the last two verses, verses 24 and 26, and we'll go to communion. Andrew Davis, in a commentary some of you community group leaders have, uh, really sums it up well. He says the last couple of verses, 24 through 26, he says this. 24 through 26 speaks of tyrants who hold the exiles captive and have to be crushed in order to let the people of God go free. So either the Gentiles will aid the streaming of the exiles uh, back to Zion, or they will resist it and be destroyed by an avenging God, end quote. What he's saying is, as the Gentiles we see um, in, in this text, raise up, look at verse 22, I will lift my hands to the nation, raise my signal to the people, bring your sons from afar, uh, kings and foster fathers. He's talking about the Gentiles that are, that are now ushering in uh, uh, to God's people, bowing down before them. He says that there's going to come a time that the opponents against God's people will be crushed. They will either help bring the people back or they will be crushed. And it reminds me of the promise that Jesus made to his church. He says the gates of hell, no matter what's going on in the world, the gates of hell will never prevail the building of his church. And family, I will tell you that we're in an age and and a time where we need to understand the growing hostility toward the word of God and the people of God. We need to be reminded regularly that the battle belongs to the Lord. That's what this text is all about. We need to remind it, as uh, you may read 2 Chronicles 20, in the the prayer of uh, Jehoshaphat. He's like, these people are going to come and destroy us. What am I to do? We're powerless against them, Second Chronicles 20. And the Lord responds, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. I, I, I know they're coming after you. The battle is not yours but God's. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them. The Lord will be with you. The Lord will be with you. The Lord will strengthen you. The Lord will care for you. The battle belongs to the Lord. They will feast. Look at the last verses. Listen, it's getting so bad they're feasting on their own blood. Forced to feed themselves so that all will know at the end of the day, the work, the call of the servant Savior, the rescuing of God's people, they will know that I am the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One, the Mighty One of Jacob. The band, you guys can come up. We're going to wrap it up right now. The point of the exodus, the point of the exodus from Egypt, the point of Cyrus releasing the Jews, the point of Christ coming, uh, Christ coming again, the point of all that is to point to the goodness and the grace and the mercy and redemption of Christ. And that's what this table is all about. The victory of Christ will be so glorious that one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The table represents the body and the blood of Christ. We are called to remember, to recall, and to reflect on the gospel. 
the release from the bondage of sin, the comfort and compassion of God that he has shown to us who's been afflicted with sin and brokenness. Jesus Christ himself is inviting you to come to the table. The power of the Holy Spirit, he wants to encourage us and strengthen us as we take of the bread, remembering his body that was broken, as we drink of the cup, remember the blood that was shed for our sins. That's what this table is all about. And if you're a follower of Christ, you're invited to come to the table. If you're not and you have not received Christ as Lord and Savior, today's the day. Confess your sin. Confess your need for Christ. And repent. That means turn from being your own Savior and trust Jesus. Ask him to forgive you of your sin, to come into your life, to wash you from your sins and to make you new. And he will. That's his promise, not my promise. The band's going to play in a moment. And I'm going to ask folks to come down these aisles here, and then you can go back on the other aisles. It's a time of confession. Grab the element, go back to your seat, sit down, pray, stand and sing, whatever you want, as we prepare our hearts with confessing and repenting, and then we'll rejoice and take of the cup, uh, the bread and the cup together. Let us pray. Father, we recognize the servant of the Lord in this passage is Jesus himself. He came to restore sinners to you. His mission was one of reconciling us to you through the blood shed at the cross of Calvary, his substitutionary atonement, his wrath-absorbing sacrifice in our place. This act of great humility and servanthood has been rewarded with exaltation. He is the king and reigning ruler of the universe. We acknowledge that today. And Father, as we sing, as we, as we celebrate the communion table, as we take of the bread representing his body that was broken for us as we drink of the cup, recognizing the blood that was shed. Father, we pray that our hearts would be just filled with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving, Lord God, and that we would leave this place uh, not only renewed and not only encouraged and strengthened, but, Lord, back thinking and working through what it means to live on mission with you. There's so many people in our, in our sphere of influence that need to hear the gospel that need to see the love of Jesus acted out and need to hear the words of the gospel proclaimed. So help us to do that, we pray, as we worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.